This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're actually going to hear two stories, one by Veronica Gang called Love Trouble is My Business. She chuckled insanely like Mr. Reagan looped on something you wouldn't want to drink while you read Proust. And the second by Ian Fraser called Coyote v. Acme. Mr. Coyote states that on occasions too numerous to list in this document, he has suffered mishaps with explosives purchased of defendant. The stories were chosen by Jonathan Franzen, a frequent contributor to the magazine and the author of the novel The Corrections. His latest book is a memoir called The Discomfort Zone, which is out in paperback from Picador. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Deborah. So you chose to read two pieces for this podcast, both of which were published in the magazine not officially as fiction, but more under the rubric that we used to call casuals and now call shouts and murmurs, which is to say things that are still fictional, but considered to be a little lighter and they're more humorous and not necessarily aspiring to be great literature. Um, What was it that made you choose these pieces? I would go back to the early 80s when I was becoming a New Yorker reader, and there were no um, – I don't know what they're called, the little the little department titles. The you rubrics, have, yeah. The, the little rubrics. Uh, you didn't have those back then. In fact, you didn't have bylines. The The name of the writer was always was just attached after a, an M dash at the end of the piece. And so there was no way to distinguish the short, often funny right. pieces – that would appear before the longer story. So they had, they actually had the same status, at least to my innocent eye, yeah. coming fresh to the New Yorker without anyone telling me how to read it. They had the same status as fiction. And although in, in a sense they weren't aspiring to be literature, they were part of a, a spectrum that led through Donald Barthelme into the full-length New Yorker story. And they were all, they were, they, they, if anything, they were even more preoccupied and careful with language than the stories themselves were. So I, I I continue not really to make a distinction in my mind between these. It's it's just that it's more a matter of they were not so narrative, they were really more mm-hmm. jokes. Just to give some background, Gang and Fraser were both staff writers at The New Yorker for about 20 years, almost the same stretch of time. And Fraser still writes for the magazine. Uh, Gang died in 1997. The two of them were very close back then. Gang was also Fraser's editor for a time. And uh, Fraser wrote the introduction for a posthumous collection of Gang's pieces in which he wrote, What she might think of something I write remains prominent in my judgment of it even today. I wrote humor pieces specifically for her to read, and when she didn't like them, as happens sometimes, I would be depressed for days and consider radical revisions of my entire life in order to make myself funny again. I wonder if that sort of resonance and relationship between them is, is a reason you might have wanted to do these two together. I associate them in my mind. I didn't realize that they were that close, and I hadn't read that introduction. I knew very little about her. I still know very little about her. I remember there was a jacket photo on one of her collections of this very elegant-looking woman, essentially French-kissing a large dog. Her very name, the springs in the name Veronica, and then that very, very sharp-edged ding at the end. (laughs) It it had this uh, something about the way the, the New Yorker was exuberant and also really scary, really strict. Um, <laughs> she represented something about yeah. the magazine to me, and it's, and it's interesting that for Fraser too, yeah. um, she embodied that, that spirit. Humor pieces in The New Yorker are often inspired by things writers have noticed elsewhere. The Veronica Gang piece, for instance, opens with a quotation from The New York Times and then a quotation from a Village Voice piece. Um, do you want to talk about those? Yeah, this is uh, – it's actually a, a very nicely written 
excerpt from the New York Times, uh, Francis X. Kleins, who was, who was covering Washington, and then a meta-clever line from the Village Voice. And this was, again, what Veronica Ging represented to me. She was the meta on the meta. <laughs> and she, and as, as you'll see, the cleverness just ramps upward. But Kleins himself is not unclever to begin with. So I'm going to read the, uh, the Kleins quote and then the, uh, the Jeffrey Stokes, who had the media column in the Village Voice quote. Francis X. Kleins in the Sunday Times. President Reagan resembled a bashful cowboy the other day when he was asked about the apparent collapse of the Star Wars talks with the Soviet Union. At his side, murmuring something through the fixed smile that seems required of American political spouses, Mrs. Reagan was overheard prompting him, We're doing everything we can. Out there in the president's mountainside retreat, subjects such as the Soviet Union seem to haunt Mr. Reagan the way vows to read Proust dog other Americans at leisure. And then the Jeffrey Stokes in the village voice. This may be the only time in history in which the words Mr. Reagan and read Proust will appear in the same sentence. So those are the epigraphs. And now here is Love Trouble is My Business by Veronica Gang. I glanced over at the dame sleeping next to me, and all of a sudden I wanted some other dame, the way you see Mr. Reagan on TV and all of a sudden get a yen to read Proust. Not that she wasn't attractive, with rumpled blonde curls and a complexion so transparent you could read Proust through it. That is, as long as her cute habit of claiming a tax deduction for salon facials didn't turn up in a memo to Mr. Reagan from some IRS stool pigeon. It was taking her a little more time to wake up than it would take Mr. Reagan's horse to read Proust. After I'd showered and shaved and put on an old pair of pants that wouldn't lead anybody to believe my tailor was unduly influenced by having read Proust, I went back over to the bed where I wasn't exactly planning to say my prayers, Mr. Reagan or no Mr. Reagan. Mr. Reagan? she whispered, fluttering her lashes and I trusted the dazed quizzical act about as much as if she'd told me she could read Proust without moving her lips. I slugged her a couple of times, and I'd have slugged her a couple more times if something hadn't told me I'd got a colder shoulder than a cult nut insisting you could read Proust as anagrams predicting the end of the world during the administration of Mr. Reagan. She chuckled insanely like Mr. Reagan looped on something you wouldn't want to drink while you read Proust. Then she touched me, with the practiced efficiency of a protocol officer steering some terribly junior diplomat through a receiving line to meet Mr. Reagan. Funny, but I got the idea she wasn't suggesting we curl up and read Proust. As her hand slid along my thigh, I noticed that she wore a ring with a diamond the size of the brain of a guy who read Proust all the time. And if I'd been Mr. Reagan, I'd have been dumb enough to buy her another one to go with it. But the distance between a private eye's income and Mr. Reagan's was a gaping chasm big enough to crawl into and read Proust. I wondered if Mr. Reagan worked this hard for his dough as I maneuvered her into the Kama Sutra position known as too busy to read Proust. I woke to the phone shrilling in my ear like the hotline warning Mr. Reagan that 10,000 Russian missiles hurtling over Western Europe weren't RSVPing for a let's-get-together-once-a-week-and-read-Proust party. I let it ring, hoping the caller would decide to quit and go reread Proust, and wondering why dames always ran out on me without saying goodbye, why they didn't stick around with loyal, wifely, fixed smiles the way they did for hotshots like Mr. Reagan. Then I found myself getting a little weepy at a sentimental, popular tune that was drifting through the Venetian blinds. 
The connoisseur who's read Proust does it. Mr. Reagan with a boost does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Read Proust where each duck and conte does it. Mr. Reagan with a prompt does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. I've read Proust wish that he had done it through a small aperture. Has Leningrad done it? Mr. Reagan's not sure. Some who read Proust say Odette did it. Mr. Reagan with a safety net did it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Cherchez la femme, I said to myself, a phrase I'd picked up on a case where the judge gave clemency to a homicidal maniac for having read Proust. And then I went out in the rain to a bookstore where I usually browsed for dames and found one perusing Mr. Reagan's latest autobiography. Just for fun, I looked over her shoulder and read, For a long time, before I met Nancy, I used to go to bed early. That was Love Trouble is My Business by Veronica Gang, published in The New Yorker in 1984. You can also find it in Veronica Gang's book, Love Trouble, New and Collected Work, published by Mariner Books. So, Jonathan, do you remember reading that piece in 1984 in the magazine, or did you find it later? No, no, I read it in 1984. And one of the things that that's striking to me looking back on it now is that it, of course, is just a pure performance. Somebody has set it a very high bar, and she's shown that she's she not only can clear the bar, but she can do it in ruby red dancing slippers. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's just I'll show you, yeah. uh, and I'll show you in sentence after sentence. But looking at it now, there actually is a serious kernel to it. Eighty four was a very dark year for those on the American political left, and as as the Stokes quote indicates there there was something just inconceivable about linking the reading of Proust with Ronald Reagan and and here was this was this was a way of addressing those 10,000 nuclear warheads that might be winging their way toward us but also making it all okay I, I think there's a seriousness lurking in the piece even though it's just pure fun and pure performance mm-hmm. Robert Gottlieb who was the editor of the New Yorker for Gang's last few years here referred to her as one of the magazine's extreme writers, you know, meaning that she was maybe more intellectual or cerebral than many readers were prepared for. What do you think he meant by that? I take him to be saying that she was hardcore preoccupied with language. Mm-hmm. That is an avant-garde thing. You, you basically, she was at the very, she was at the extreme formal end. That wasn't all she was, but this piece is about language. It's about the tone and it's about having fun, not with the content, but with the form. And that, you know, that that is hardcore. Yeah. Well, it's funny that for her being an editor, Roger Angel tells me that she was likely the hardest person to edit in the entire history of the magazine. <laughs> it can go it can go two ways. <laughs> All right, now let's move on to the Ian Fraser story, Coyote v. Acme. Can you set this one up for us a little bit? As with the gang, this is one of those humor pieces that run on the collision of two very different vocabularies. Uh, in this case, the ridiculous visual vocabulary of a Warner Brothers cartoon and the extremely earnest, somewhat self-righteous tone of a, of a legal presentation in a, in a civil suit. So we'll talk again after the story. Here's Coyote v. Acme by Ian Fraser. Coyote v. Acme. In the United States District Court, Southwestern District, Tempe, Arizona, Case number B19294, Judge Joan Kujava presiding. Wiley Coyote Plaintiff v. Acme Company, Defendant. Opening Statement of Mr. Harold Schaff, Attorney for Mr. Coyote. 
My client, Mr. Wiley Coyote, a resident of Arizona and contiguous states, does hereby bring suit for damages against the Acme Company, manufacturer and retail distributor of assorted merchandise incorporated in Delaware and doing business in every state, district, and territory. Mr. Coyote seeks compensation for personal injuries, loss of business income, and mental suffering caused as a direct result of the actions and or gross negligence of said company. Under Title 15 of the United States Code, Chapter 47, Section 2072, Subsection A, Relating to Product Liability. Mr. Coyote states that on 85 separate occasions he has purchased of the Acme Company, here and after, defendant, through that company's mail order department, certain products which did cause him bodily injury due to defects in manufacture or improper cautionary labeling. Sales slips made out to Mr. Coyote as proof of purchase are at present in the possession of the court marked Exhibit A. Such injuries sustained by Mr. Coyote have temporarily restricted his ability to make a living in his profession of predator. Mr. Coyote is self-employed and thus not eligible for workman's compensation. Mr. Coyote states that on December 13th he received of defendant, via parcel post, one Acme rocket sled. The intention of Mr. Coyote was to use the rocket sled to aid him in pursuit of his prey. Upon receipt of the rocket sled, Mr. Coyote removed it from its wooden shipping crate and, sighting his prey in the distance, activated the ignition. As Mr. Coyote gripped the handlebars, the rocket sled accelerated with such sudden and precipitate force as to stretch Mr. Coyote's forelimbs to a length of 50 feet. Subsequently, the rest of Mr. Coyote's body shot forward with a violent jolt, causing severe strain to his back and neck and placing him unexpectedly astride the rocket sled. Disappearing over the horizon at such speed as to leave a diminishing jet trail along its path, the rocket sled soon brought Mr. Coyote abreast of his prey. At that moment, the animal he was pursuing veered sharply to the right. Mr. Coyote vigorously attempted to follow this maneuver, but was unable to, due to poorly designed steering on the rocket sled and a faulty or non-existent braking system. Shortly thereafter, the unchecked progress of the rocket sled brought it and Mr. Coyote into collision with the side of a mesa. Paragraph 1 of the Report of Attending Physician, Exhibit B, prepared by Dr. Ernest Grosskup, M.D., D.O., details the multiple fractures, contusions, and tissue damage suffered by Mr. Coyote as a result of this collision. Repair of the injuries required a full bandage around the head, excluding the ears, a neck brace, and full or partial casts on all four legs. Hampered by these injuries, Mr. Coyote was nevertheless obliged to support himself, with this in mind, he purchased of defendant as an aid to mobility one pair of Acme rocket skates. When he attempted to use this product, however, he became involved in an accident remarkably similar to that which occurred with the rocket sled. Again, defendant sold over-the-counter, without caveat, a product which attached powerful jet engines, in this case two, to inadequate vehicles with little or no provision for passenger safety. Encumbered by his heavy casts, Mr. Coyote lost control of the rocket skates soon after strapping them on and collided with a roadside billboard so violently as to leave a hole in the shape of his full silhouette. Mr. Coyote states that on occasions too numerous to list in this document, he has suffered mishaps with explosives purchased of defendant, the Acme Little Giant Firecracker, the Acme Self-Guided Aerial Bomb, etc., for a full listing, see the Acme Mail Order Explosives Catalog and attached deposition entered in evidence as Exhibit C. Indeed, it is safe to say that not once has an explosive purchased of defendant by Mr. Coyote performed in an expected manner. To cite just one example, 
At the expense of much time and personal effort, Mr. Coyote constructed around the outer rim of a butte a wooden trough beginning at the top of the butte and spiraling downward around it to some few feet above a black X painted on the desert floor. The trough was designed in such a way that a spherical explosive of the type sold by defendant would roll easily and swiftly down to the point of detonation indicated by the X. Mr. Coyote placed a generous pile of birdseed directly on the X and then, carrying the spherical Acme bomb, catalog number 78-832, climbed to the top of the butte. Mr. Coyote's prey, seeing the birdseed, approached, and Mr. Coyote proceeded to light the fuse. In an instant, the fuse burned down to the stem, causing the bomb to detonate. In addition to reducing all Mr. Coyote's careful preparations to naught, the premature detonation of defendant's product resulted in the following disfigurements to Mr. Coyote. 1. Severe singeing of the hair on the head, neck, and muzzle. 2. Sooty discoloration. 3. Fracture of the left ear at the stem, causing the ear to dangle in the aftershock with a creaking noise. 4. Full or partial combustion of whiskers, producing kinking, frazzling, and ashy disintegration. 5. Radical widening of the eyes, due to brow and lid charring. We come now to the Acme spring-powered shoes. The remains of a pair of these, purchased by Mr. Coyote on June 23rd, are Plaintiff's Exhibit D. Selected fragments have been shipped to the metallurgical laboratories at the University of California at Santa Barbara for analysis, but to date no explanation has been found for this product's sudden and extreme malfunction. As advertised by defendant, this product is simplicity itself. Two wood and metal sandals, each attached to milled steel springs of high tensile strength and compressed in a tightly coiled position by a cocking device with a lanyard release. Mr. Coyote believed that this product would enable him to pounce upon his prey in the initial moments of the chase when swift reflexes are at a premium. To increase the shoe's thrusting power still further, Mr. Coyote affixed them by their bottoms to the side of a large boulder. Adjacent to the boulder was a path which Mr. Coyote's prey was known to frequent. Mr. Coyote put his hind feet in the wood and metal sandals and crouched in readiness, his right forepaw holding firmly to the lanyard release. Within a short time, Mr. Coyote's prey did indeed appear on the path coming toward him. Unsuspecting, the prey stopped near Mr. Coyote, well within range of the springs at full extension. Mr. Coyote gauged the distance with care and proceeded to pull the lanyard release. At this point, defendant's product should have thrust Mr. Coyote forward and away from the boulder. Instead, for reasons yet unknown, the Acme spring-powered shoes thrust the boulder away from Mr. Coyote. As the intended prey looked on unharmed, Mr. Coyote hung suspended in air. Then the twin springs recoiled, bringing Mr. Coyote to a violent feet-first collision with the boulder, the full weight of his head and forequarters falling upon his lower extremities. The force of this impact then caused the springs to rebound, whereupon Mr. Coyote was thrust skyward. A second recoil and collision followed. The boulder, meanwhile, which was roughly ovoid in shape, had begun to bounce down a hillside, the coiling and recoiling of the springs adding to its velocity. At each bounce, Mr. Coyote came into contact with the boulder, or the boulder came into contact with Mr. Coyote, or both came into contact with the ground. As the grade was a long one, this process continued for some time. The sequence of collisions resulted in systemic physical damage to Mr. Coyote, viz. flattening of the cranium, sideways displacement of the tongue, reduction of length of legs and upper body, and compression of vertebrae from base of tail to head. 
Repetition of blows along a vertical axis produced a series of regular horizontal folds in Mr. Coyote's body tissues, a rare and painful condition which caused Mr. Coyote to expand upward and contract downward alternately as he walked and to emit an off-key accordion-like wheezing with every step. The distracting and embarrassing nature of this symptom has been a major impediment to Mr. Coyote's pursuit of a normal social life. As the court is no doubt aware, defendant has a virtual monopoly of manufacture and sale of goods required by Mr. Coyote's work. It is our contention that defendant has used his market advantage to the detriment of the consumer of such specialized products as itching powder, giant kites, Burmese tiger traps, anvils, and 200-foot-long rubber bands. Much as he has come to mistrust defendant's products, Mr. Coyote has no other domestic source of supply to which to turn. One can only wonder what our trading partners in Western Europe and Japan would make of such a situation, where a giant company is allowed to victimize the consumer in the most reckless and wrongful manner over and over again. Mr. Coyote respectfully requests that the court regard these larger economic implications and assess punitive damages in the amount of $17 million. In addition, Mr. Coyote seeks actual damages, missed meals, medical expenses, days lost from professional occupation, of $1 million. General damages, mental suffering, injury to reputation, of $20 million, and attorney's fees of $750,000. Total damages, $38,750,000. By awarding Mr. Coyote the full amount, this court will censure defendant, its directors, officers, shareholders, successors, and assigns in the only language they understand and reaffirm the right of the individual predator to equal protection under the law. That was Coyote v. Acme by Ian Fraser, published in The New Yorker in 1990 and collected in his book Coyote v. Acme, which is out in paperback from Picador. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So Gang took on Raymond Chandler's voice. Frazier takes on legalese and this whole culture of personal liability lawsuits in America. One thing that both of these pieces have in common is is their drive to take completely literally things that are not meant to be literal. What's happening to the coyote is not meant to literally be happening. And, you know, Jeffrey Stokes didn't literally mean there will never be another sentence with these words in it. So it's almost a, a stubbornness on the part of the writer saying... I see this thing or I've read this thing and I'm going to take it at face value and run with that. Right. That's the meta step that Fraser has taken. He said, okay, well, let's take this. Let's take the whole premise seriously. What is this Acme company? What are they doing putting these outrageous 
products with, with no steering mechanisms and inadequate braking mechanisms out on the market. Though, in fact, probably the products are working as they're meant to work. It's just that Wiley Coyote is not using them in the manner they should be used. <laughs> um, you know, but the, but the rockets, the rocket sled, the lack of a braking mechanism would, be, would, <laughs> would appear to be a rather serious, like, <laughs> yeah, where yeah. is the Consumer Product Safety Administration? <laughs> Well, who is who is Fraser making fun of here? Lawyers or the coyote? I think this is more about the cartoon and about Acme than it is about the legal system. That's just the that's that's the estrangement mechanism that he happens to choose. Both of these pieces. One, one thing that's striking to me about them now is just how unironic they are, how sort of joyful they are in their celebration of what they're doing. Is that something that draws you to them? It's something I particularly admire in Fraser. He really doesn't seem to have a mean bone in his body. This is not this is not humor at anyone's expense. It is something I would call silly. And the thing about silliness is that it's almost definitionally incapable of malice. You can't be silly and malicious at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, the pursuit of humor for its own sake, something we do a lot of in America, but it's a real high wire act when you're doing it purely with language because you don't have interaction with audience to work with it either works or it doesn't and he is like wiley coyote himself doing ever more desperate things what do i do to get you to laugh you know he's <laughs> he, he's pursuing the roadrunner the way you know fraser is pursuing the laugh yeah humor that doesn't work for me seems to be so full of hostility and 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 so full of shame and the person who can be silly is somebody who's gotten past shame in some way and is not having to you know snicker at stuff yeah, a total lack of embarrassment. Right, but not but by not playing up to an audience embarrassment either. So it seems more generous in several ways, more generous in not making malicious fun of anyone, but also in presupposing that you just that that the audience is up to the speed of just wanting to be silly. Mm-hmm. Well, some humor writing dates very quickly. Gang's story is twenty five years old. Fraser's is almost twenty. Right. How do you think these two pieces are holding up? Oh, you're asking somebody who's who's getting dated himself. You know, I <laughs> I don't experience them as dated, but I'm I'm because I'm aging with them. I I fear yeah. I'm not the most reliable source yeah. on whether they are. Uh, we went back and forth about what stories I would read, and I wanted I was really intent on honoring all of the the great work that has been done in the casual form for the magazine, and trying to bring that into the conversation and look at these casuals as one end of a spectrum that is the fiction in, in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just picked two pieces that I remembered loving. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly the gang, I just I, I will actually bore people at, at dinner parties by saying, and then there was this amazing Veronica gang piece back in the <laughs> 80s. So I'm still laughing. And, and that, <laughs> that to me is, is, is the best indication that they're not dated. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Deborah. You can read Jonathan Franzen's latest piece of fiction, Good Neighbors, in the June 8th and 15th issue of the magazine, The Fiction Issue. You can also read it on our website, newyorker.com. Jonathan Franzen's latest book is The Discomfort Zone, A Personal History. You can download dozens of previous New Yorker fiction podcasts in the iTunes store, where you can also subscribe to the program. Just type New Yorker into the iTunes search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.